welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. kind of funny that we've made it to the mid-20s without actually tackling the art form of music, which isn't to say that we haven't talked about music before. I think there was some, I, I talked at least a little bit about the music in the film Stalker. But yeah, why have we waited this long? Especially odd since I'm actually employed as a person who talks about music. That's like my job. I don't know. I think it's hard to talk about music. At least I've found it hard to talk about music. I wrote a book on art and I hardly, I mean, there are a few little references to music in it, but they're almost kind of like just, what's the expression I'm looking for? Um, yeah, they're kind of throwaway remarks, but like, it's not as if the arguments depend upon the particular qualities of music. There are philosophers actually whose thinking is heavily influenced by music as such. Schopenhauer is probably the most obvious example. Uh, Suzanne Langer in our own, well, I should say in the last century, in the 20th century, Philosophy in a New Key, the very title of which tells you something about the nature of the philosophy that's sort yeah. of musically influenced. Uh, Bergson was big on music as well. Oh, is that so? I didn't know that. Yeah, music and painting, but music particularly because music is such a beautiful demonstration of what Bergson meant by duration, right? Um, How do you mean? Well, okay, well, music has to happen in time. You can't have music without time. And yet, you can't separate notes from each other. You have to look at them as a kind of series, as a kind of flow. A musical piece has to flow. You know, the difference between music experienced and music looked at on a score or even broken down into a kind of like abstractly any yeah, yeah any kind of visual representation it doesn't have to be a score it could be the readout in uh, pro tools or something but any schematization of music that where you can manipulate it right yeah. a waveform or even music sped up the difference between music abstracted out of its duration and music really experienced that's precisely what he means when he talks about the difference between the kind of uh, rationalist dissection of reality into slices into into frozen moments that add up to movement and the actual durational experience of flow which cannot be broken down into points or slices or frames like that's mm -hmm. his big critique that's this one idea Bergson we, last mm -hmm. time we talked about how Bergson had one idea well that was his one idea he was trying to think movement in itself uh, the difference between when you move your arm you can feel that it's just a simple thing it's just a movement of the arm but when I look at you move your arm I see your arm going through all these this infinite number of points from A to B and therefore I'm not experiencing the movement the way you are, I'm not seeing the reality of that movement, which can only be experienced in a kind of first-person way or through what Bergson called an act of sympathy, uh, an intuitive mm. act of sympathy, which is almost kind of a telepathic becoming the thing itself so that you can experience what it is to be that thing instead of just breaking it down into an abstract model. So when Bergson talks about movement, 
he means mobility, physical mobility, but he also means something like movement in music. A movement in a piece is really a flow from one thing to another where you can't really locate the points at which change happens. It's just this constant process that you have to take as such. Well, the moment that you point at something, you say, there, there yeah. is where change happened. It's the moment you're plucking it out of that durational continuum right and reifying it turning it into a point a fixed point in space-time but at that point you have falsified the motion it's sort of actually it's a little bit like life you know i can show you a living creature but i can't show you life as such right and if exactly. i try to isolate it in some particular thing like the beat of the heart or some particular process like that that would be an abstraction from just that moving bit of life. If I try to arrest some kind of process to show you the life within it, then that process would be over and the life would be gone. Uh, you know what I mean? That's exactly it. In fact, life is the term in Bergson that he uses to describe what's actually going on in the universe. You know, yeah. his term is la vie, life. And life isn't some kind of organic function of this or that organ or some kind of chemical thing. Life is movement itself. And so you can see there that there's this very clear musical vision in Bergson when it comes to the universe. The universe is a symphonic thing. The universe is a kind of like, or polyphonic, I should say, phenomenon. So music exemplifies what's going on cosmologically and this to me is interesting i don't talk about it in reclaiming art but it's something i think about all the time it's exactly what kubrick's doing in 2001 with with the waltzes in space right yeah um, the use of the blue danube waltz in 2001 is cool because the sound of the music and that slow triple bottom bum bottom you know that kind of one two three one two three kind of waltz rhythm that has a kind of you know, triplets have a kind of tripping quality to them, always stumbling forward into the next measure. You know, there's something about a waltz that mm -hmm. is about movement. In the way that dance music generally is going to be about movement, the suturing together of the Blue Danube waltz with the slow rotation of a space station, it's an image that's simultaneously visual and audible of movement which is a very commonplace thing to say because everything you see in a film is an image of movement is a movement in time but i don't know i'm reminded of a quote from victor shklovsky a formalist critic that i always like to quote he said the purpose of art is to make the stone stony and which i love i love you that know, it's yeah the idea of like taking your stale and basically functionalistic patterns of perception when you walk through your neighborhood seeing rocks and trees and things, your habits of vision are so routinized that you, they might as well, the rocks and trees might as well be replaced by post-it notes that say rock and tree, right? Yeah. They just become mental abstractions or, or figures of convenience. And the idea of making the stone stony is to take those 
things and reveal them in their true freshness, that every stone by the roadside that you walk by on the way to work has its own ineffable uniqueness, its yeah. own particularity. And the idea that art is getting us back to the level of that uniqueness, that particularity, you know, and getting back to the Blue Danube waltz in space, that is a kind of making the stone stony of motion itself, that kind of Bergsonian durée, that feeling of the movementness of movement. That's what that is. Art offers a form of materialism that would put Newton and Darwin to shame. It's a true materialism in the sense that it's a true attempt to peel away what stops us from experiencing matter. And I'm using matter in its occult sense, its etymological sense, which links it to motherhood, to the, the void, to the womb, to the potentiality of things. And to think of music as material is interesting because obviously music is a form of matter. Um, but it's not the form of matter that we think of when we think about traditional classical materialism. It's not just an energy. It's not just a solid or a liquid or a gas, but there's something going on materially that makes music the kind of exemplar of this new materiality that Bergson and I think art in general tends to reveal to us. It's not a materialism that's um, nihilistic or eliminative or reductionist. It's a materialism that is innately alive, where matter is innately alive and panpsychist in a sense. You know? To get back to the thing about the waltz too, is that the waltz is, invokes a circularity, a kind of circling, right? The waltz always spins, at least that's what the dance does. And I find the 3-4 rhythm also suggests circles or cycles or a spiral oh, yeah. maybe. As, as, they as they did to the medieval musicians. Originally, the idea was that a metrical unit, we would say bar or measure, but they didn't have that terminology. But a, uh, a unit of time would be perfect if it was triple and imperfect if it was duple. Right, because the third term always adds the element of change, right? It's That's built into a kind of dialectical model where, you know, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. You always have this new term that's flipping or moving things to another stage or to another into another form. So there's something about three. Three is an unstable number in alchemy. So the instability of the waltz forces one to spin, and it spins and spins so it doesn't fall in a sense. And you can see that in... 2001 with the waltz and then the spinning and the station orbiting the earth and the station rotating itself. You know, there's this beautiful erotic, because the waltz is also a very erotic form of music. So you have this erotic circling, this erotic cycling or spiraling that evokes, that kind of modernizes or updates something like Pythagoras's music of the spheres. That's kind of what's going on in 2001. And then there's the technological music like the kind of technological artificial purely semiotic version of the music of the spheres at the beginning with the waltz and the ships and all this artifice and technology and the waltz being a kind of cultural artifact and then at the end you get this in the film which stands for the real music of the spheres which is Ligeti's weird chorus piece at, at the atmosphere. end yeah atmosphere right when you're going beyond the infinite according to the title cards of the film you're moving into this trans-temporal, hyper-dimensional kind of space, and there you're hearing another music, which suggests a deeper 
layer of the real, which is not a purely semiotic representation, but actually the thing itself. You're, you're experiencing the true music of the spheres, which is very fucking weird. You know, I've always been impressed by whenever NASA releases those recordings of planets, you know, they translate into sound, the vibrational emissions of various celestial bodies. It's It often mm-hmm. sounds a lot like Ligeti's atmospheres, you know. It's very and interesting. So there's this moving into the unhuman in 2001, which connects the waltz to that kind of cosmological music or sound of existence itself or of matter itself. It's interesting. But yeah, that wasn't one of the pieces we chose today, though. <laughs> no, actually, we were going to talk about Ligeti and we were going to talk about Kubrick, but a different piece of Ligeti in a different film of Kubrick's. Which we will. So, so well, our, why, don't our, we, why don't we get cracking with that? Yeah, Let's start with that one. Our plan was Phil and I both picked two pieces of music that we like, and we'll spend about 20, 25 minutes on, on each one of them. And then if we'll, we have any, uh, have any discipline, that is, right. which history has shown that we don't. No. So, maybe we'll just end up talking about Musica Rishikata like for an hour and a half. Right. It could happen. Are we starting with that one? Well, you know, that seems like uh, a logical place to start since we kicked things off thinking about 2001. Why don't we get on with uh, Ligeti's Musica Ricciacata, the second movement. So, so this this piece, Ricciacata number two by Ligeti, I discovered this piece like most people I think that aren't musically uh, literate, uh, watching Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. I've never felt the power of music in cinema as strongly as I did watching this film and hearing how Kubrick used the piece. And also the world that the piece brought into the universe of the film. For me, this is a truly weird piece of music. I picked it because it gives me a feeling of uh, fear and hate, but mm. in a in a way that's also drenched in a kind of like tragic pathos or something that I find so appealing. It's a it's a primal color. And it's dark and it's menacing, but at the same time, it's filled with. Um, it'll this will make more sense when I talk about the origins of the piece, but I feel that it contains hope as well, or something. It's a very ambivalent piece, and the two pieces I picked for this show are both kind of hinge on this ambivalence, which I think music connects us with this fundamental ontological ambivalence that music always enacts in a, in a sense. But uh, in this piece, it's very apparent. But I'd like you to start, Phil, by like with your knowledge and theoretical know-how, like kind of just break it down for us and tell us what's going on in this piece musically. Happily. I'm going to offer a, I don't know, the Reader's Digest version of this piece. It's very easy to explain in, I don't know, not formal terms, just sort of the basic musical materials that Ligeti is using. Basically, it's a single interval between an E-sharp and an F-sharp. And 
the marking is mesto rigido e ceremoniale, um, you know, rigid and ceremonial. And so, you know, this is not a piece to play tempo rubato with a lot of freedom. It's supposed to be, I think, and certainly is often played in a quasi-mechanical way where you hear... it's just that it's this alternation between e sharp and f sharp or f and f sharp and in different arrangements so like the third measure is and after four measures of that we then go to a very quiet pianissimo una corda which means one string there's a pedal on a grand piano that allows the whole array of hammers to shift rightwards a little bit so they're striking fewer strings um and we get that for a while for four measures and then we have a return of the single note and that now we're going to add an octave displacement so the f sharp we hear an octave above And it's just that. That's the totality of the material. Then you get a long pause. It's a 4-4 measure of silence with like a fermata over it. Fermata is a musical symbol. It means, you know, hold it for a long time. And then we hear a new pitch, a single G. We hear a G played fortissimo. Tutta la forza, it says in the score, with all force. Tre corde, so take, the, that, take that una corda pedal off. So now the hammers of the piano are striking all the strings, all the strings available for each note. you got to understand each note is like triple strung, except for the very low notes. And actually there's a fingering notation in the music where you're playing those Gs, with your thumb and forefinger together. So your hand is supposed to be sort of formed almost into like a beak, like a like a like an owl or like a little hammer. Or a knife. Yeah, or like a knife. Yeah, exactly. And it's a harsh sound. And it goes from half notes to triplet half notes to quarter notes to pentuplet quarter notes and so like the audio effect of that is gradually sort of speeding up like that I played it at a faster tempo than indicated, but just to give you a sense of it. Right. And then finally, when we sort of reach the apex of that acceleration, 
we hit a we play it as an octave right that is to say the same pitch it's a g an octave apart and at that powerful octave that you're supposed to play sfortissimo again that's a, a marking in the score that's just like with extreme force but then instantly pianissimo and as it were in the shadow of that extremely powerful accent you're supposed to play repeated g as quickly as possible but it says in the score repetition of tones as dense as possible and so the idea is that you're creating almost a kind of like a ripple or a vibrato on a single note it's quite difficult to do and unfortunately that that g of my piano sticks but the effect would be something like this i'm going to play down an octave And then, as it's died away, you get this back. So th that's kind of how this piece works. You get this alternation of E sharp and F sharp with a couple of registral displacements, you know, playing things at octaves or whatever. And then you get this G, and then you get the E sharp and F sharp again, and these two sonic elements playing off against one another. And that's the piece. It's extremely minimalistic, although it's not, you know, like, um, uh, it's not like Philip Glass minimalism, pulsed minimalism, where you're likely to hear stuff that sounds like, you know. <laughs> kind of thing it's minimalist in the sense that it is very carefully paring down the available not only pitches but gestures like things you can do with those pitches and i don't know what do you make of that compositional decision like writing a piece of music that kind of works that way I've always I love minimalism as a as an aesthetic i mean one of my favorite 20th century writers is Samuel Beckett. The type of modernism I dig most is that kind of like trying to peel away all the artifice, all of the ornaments, all of the the fluff to get to some kind of fundamental essence. I love that kind of excavation that happens in, in the work of certain artists, including obviously Ligeti. So I, I really like this type of minimalism. I also, I also like glass and that kind of, you call it pulse minimalism. I, I enjoy that too. But there's something about Ligeti and other composers like Arvo uh, Pert. These are pieces that almost evoke a kind of ritornello kind of feeling, like a little tune that a child would sing in the dark to put mm -hmm. himself to sleep. These are little songs, little kind of like dark infernal lullabies. At least this particular piece, I see that way. And I, I just really like that kind of music that lets space exist, that incorporates silence. What, what do you make of it as a composition? I like the idea that space is implicit in this piece. I think particularly in that moment where we hear that G, you know, coming after a period of unmeasured silence, which is the first unmeasured thing about this piece. And the fact that the score directs you to hold the pedal down for each note. And so the pitch, when you hear it, is 
picking up the resonance of all the other strings. You hear this sharp, knife-like, incisive attack, but you have it in this space that has been set into vibratory motion. So this is me getting back slowly to the point that you just made, this element of space that's in music. Well, the way we can talk about space in music, I mean, we could talk about that in any number of different ways, the spaces that music is played in, the virtual spaces that music makes you imagine that it's being played in, the distance between pitches, this kind of thing. But in this case, that sound, that blade-like G cutting through that long pause preceding it, set into a field of resonance, has this extraordinary quality of a pitch in space. And yeah. I think this gesture actually has been much imitated. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like every superhero movie or every movie where shit blows up, when there's a trailer for that movie, they always start off with a single piano note. Yeah. Have you noticed that? Yeah. And, and it doesn't go in the same direction that the Ligeti piece goes in with that. Sometimes it does, the gradual speeding up. But, but I wonder if it comes out of, like somebody somewhere noticed Kubrick's use of this Ligeti piece and decided to mine that particular, I'm going to bust out a great word on you, a tintinabulary quality, this bell-like quality, this way of making a piano ring like a bell. Yeah, I, I know uh, that term. I know that term. You know from, what I mean? Uh, from Parrot, yeah. Parrot from is, Parrot, yeah. yeah. Yes, I, I think that's a great observation. It's probably true. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time people appropriate little bits of Kubrick and then basically like whore them out in the, the most... In the crassest possible way. Fa- crassest possible way. But also, <laughs> that, that's not to shit all over um, action movies. I think that there's they're doing their own thing but i definitely think that's true i think that that's exactly where that trope comes from um well before we go on can i ask one question what do you think is it about that spatialized resonance that makes it such a good first thing you hear in an action trailer so this is a trailer where shit is about to get real shit always gets real in such a trailer, you will get an ascending cycle of explosions and the cuts will be faster and faster. So what is it about starting off with that that single piano note kind of reverberating in a large sort of virtual space? Like, what is it about that that commends itself for that dramatic purpose? I think there's something about it, like a a scream in the dark that I feel Mm. a quality of a single lone voice screaming in darkness when you play that one note. And that knife-like quality, too, is very strong for me. Like there's something about it's, it's, you know, in a sense, it's kind of what Hitchcock was on to in Psycho. Ching, ching, ching. Those like high pitching, you know, that, that, that. Oh, and the murder scenes in uh, That murder scene in Psycho, right. There's something about these these high pitches that evokes the sound of a child or a woman screaming. I think that that note tells us something's happening and it calls attention to the screen. So if you were to use it in this kind of way, you would say, well, we'll put that note there to get people to pay attention because there's no way not to pay attention when that note rings out. 
mm-hmm. just says something's happening. It's often played on a black screen. So yeah, that note played on a black screen is telling you something you can't see is happening. There's something happening yeah. behind this in this darkness. And so you look, you watch, and then they'll have other tropes come in, like boom, you know that weird like thing. So they'll they'll combine yeah. it with deep, deep, uh, really um, low tones that bring in all this imagery. Like usually they'll have like they'll have images flashing, and then we'll be back in the dark, and then another image will flash, and we're back in the dark, and the sound is kind of just mimicking. And this is what I would say that like superior scoring in film is always a form of counterpoint. Uh, in the sense that the music is always contradicting or transmuting what's happening on the screen into something it wouldn't be without that music. Whereas like classical or there's might say something like sensory motor kind of scoring is basically scoring that just amplifies what's already on the screen. So a lot of Mickey mousing, as they called it in the old days. Right. Mickey mousing. Yeah. Or or bugs bunnying or whatever. Yeah, exactly. That's a great term for it. So you're just basically telling the audience how to feel to be in sync with the narrative. That's the goal. And that's what mm-hmm. trailers are often doing. When trailers don't do that, it becomes very interesting. But uh, There's I an think, article yeah. on Vulture, which we should put in the show notes, that actually explains why so many trailers use exactly the same auditory gestures. Because there's a bunch of them. There's the another kind of thing you hear is a kind of a chaotic sonic build that's suddenly cut off. And it's actually, again, to bring up Day in the life, it's a little bit like those Penderecki-like orchestra builds that build up to a, a, an E and then cut off all of a sudden. Uh, those kinds of gestures, or the single piano note, or whatever, there's a whole bunch of them. You see the same, or hear the same things over and over again, partly because they use separate companies. There are companies that make trailers, and typical large studio releases, they will get competitive bids from a number of these companies. And so they're all of them just constantly churning out trailers and they are constantly borrowing ideas from each other. And it's a copycat business. Yeah, well, I mean, know, a, with- a trailer is a, um, a neurological tool. It's a way to get asses into seats of movie theaters, right? Yeah. Or eyeballs to screens now. So the trailer has a very, very specific function in the movie business. And as much as trailers have become their kind of own art form, like as a filmmaker, I've always loved to cut the trailers to my stuff. It's like one of the little cherry on on the cake kind of things you get to do at the end. It's fun to do. They are, in a sense, the, the perfect example of what I mean in my book by Artifice because their goal is to get you to watch a movie. Um, yeah. and, and going back to Kubrick, Kubrick was a genius with trailers or some people would say he wasn't a genius because he made trailers works of art and that's not what they're supposed to be. But his trailers are always interesting and their trailers are always clues about what's actually going on in his films. But they're always they're memorable and then they get co-opted. I remember, for instance, the famous trailer to The Shining where you're seeing just this elevator shaft, just these elevator doors and then this blood starts pouring out. Right. Um, And then fills the whole room and then just blackens the screen completely. And there's this, um, I don't know if it's Ligeti, but it's this this weird chaotic crescendo of strings. Like it's just building and building and building. They use the exact same soundtrack for that 2012 movie that came out in like 2010. Yeah, where you're seeing all this flooding in the Himalayas and you're seeing all these disastrous images, these images of global catastrophe. They just cut those images to the same music. Um, Hmm. But what, again, you see it, it's like it's done once 
in a way that's suggestive, open, artistic, and then it's appropriated in a way that's overly literal, simplistic, and in a sense kind of kills the ambiguous spirit of the original. Because when you're just watching the blood coming out of the elevator shaft in The, in the Shining, you don't, you don't know what you're looking at. It's a clue, I think, but it's also a nightmarish, ambiguous image that is open to interpretation. Every viewer will see it differently because you don't know what you're seeing. Whereas in 2012, in that trailer, well, it's, you're, you know exactly what you're looking at. It's basically translating that ambiguous symbol that Kruber created into a very clear, semiotically very crystalline clear sign. But it's using the same music, which is interesting. So again, another example of how people will, will appropriate what Kubrick did and use them in different ways. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a, a slightly different way of thinking about just the one-note pian one piano thing. Audiovisual cliches, I think, sometimes tell you something real. Oh, yeah. Or they tell, they tell you about something real. Like there's something about that tintinabulary quality that goes beyond any particular semiotic use of it. Like you can use that gesture for all kinds of things that mean more or less definable things. Like in, and in trailers, it comes to mean something very definite. It's almost like the uh, musical equivalent of the thing that you used to hear way back in the day when we were young in a world gone mad. Or yeah. whatever, you know what I mean? Like those yeah. kind of, uh, you know, one man alone yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And it's just sort of like it has that kind of, that kind of meaning. But it's also pointing to something inexhaustible. Yeah, you can't in, kill the in, symbol. In that sound, you can't kill the symbol. And no. I was thinking about it, it's just like the symbol, ultimately, it goes back to bells. That's what tintinabulary means. It means bell-like. Um, it's a word that people use in conjunction with Ervo Pertz music because he is always going after a certain kind of bell-like quality of sound and it's a kind of i don't know it's there's almost something kind of heideggerian about it you know how heidegger his whole shit is things that come to our full awareness only as they are going out of existence things are always simultaneously revealing and concealing things are always moving away from us even as we are grasping them yeah that is to me the always the central mystery of the bell sound right you know it's it's the perfect the ultimate example of a sound that has an exceedingly definite beginning and yet you can't grasp it actually this is getting back to what we were saying right at the beginning that music is this art of duration of durée and the whole thing with that duration is as I said earlier, like the moment you think you've grasped it, it's already gone. The moment we've grasped the articulation, that um, that opening moment of ringing, it is already turned into something else—a resonance. That's an interesting thing to think about when you consider the fact that bells have, since for at least a thousand years in the West, have been used to count the hours. So it's a way of pointing to transience, but also of trying to break down time into usable kind of units. Like, that's interesting. I was also struck while you were talking about the bell and, and the tintambulary quality of that note and relating that back to the bell. 
well, I studied history in university. I remember I took a great class on medieval medieval society. It was really a, a class on uh, the medieval mentalité, you know, from the Annals School in France, like how people medieval people thought. And we looked at the idea of the the bell. The bell cre- the bell was a spatial instrument. You know, if you lived in a village, you know you could go as far as the sound of the bell could travel. That was the orbit or the ambit of your existence. If you went further than that, you were in the wasteland. So the bell created a space in which the known could flourish. But outside that space, outside the reach of the bell sound, you were in uh, the unknown. That idea that sound, that's another Heideggerian idea, is that the work of art for Heidegger always creates a world. You have a mountain valley, you put a temple in it, and the temple resonates out and creates a space for a world to occur, to rise up within it, a human world. And that's exactly what the bell does. So we're going a little sideways here because we're not in how that note is used in trailers or as wide shut anymore, but there's a certain quality of how the symbol creates a new space for living a new space for thought, for thinking. Wonderful. The bell kind of gets to the essence of that in a sense. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about where the, the piece comes from. I think it's very revealing in this particular instance to know how Ligeti or why Ligeti wrote it. There's a documentary titled Kubrick, A Life in Pictures. It's a wonderful kind of homage to Kubrick that was made right after he died. And uh, there's an interview with Ligeti in it where Ligeti talks about how his music was used in 2001 and then in Eyes Wide Shut. He talks about this particular piece, Ricercata number two. He says, I was in Stalinist, terroristic Hungary where this kind of music was not allowed. And I just wrote it for myself. And this is interesting because I've always, that piece always feels like it's being played by some madman alone at a piano who doesn't know how to play. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you know, Um, so he says, I wrote it for myself. Stanley Kubrick understood the dramatics of this moment. And this is what he did in the film. And for me, when I composed it in the year 1950, it was desperate. It was a knife in Stalin's heart. I think that when you listen to that, you can feel exactly where this piece is coming from and the kind of world it evokes. It's a world of oppression, a world of secrecy, a world of a police state, a spiritual police state. And it's a political act. It's an assassination attempt. I've always thought, and this is kind of weird, the piece was actually written in 1951, not 1950, as Ligeti says in that quote. Two years after that, Stalin died. And unless there have been some great discoveries recently, he died for mysterious reasons. And I've always thought, wow, what if this piece actually like magically is killed him <laughs> it was a curse that when that high note comes in at the end bing bing mm-hmm. it, it, that really reminds me of the scene in psycho of this this stabbing and hmm. the, the song begins in this kind of like uh, paranoid place and then if there's this freedom in that when that note rings out there's this opening up of a new possibility but then of course we go back to the same paranoia at the end I don't know. It's just, it's a piece that I find really captures something interesting and weird and rich. So 
so the last time you and I recorded an episode, we were talking about Naked Lunch. And one of the things I had been really looking forward to is talking about the music because the score for that film is one of the most original and, uh, to me, exciting things about it. But we never got there, so this is my chance to get back and, and talk a little bit about it. One of the things about it is that it's composed by Howard Shore, who's probably best known to everybody as the guy who wrote the music for the Lord of the Rings films. What is actually a really lush and opulent score, which is heavily indebted to Wagner, Richard Wagner, and particularly Wagner's music for Lord, um, for Lord of the Rings, for the Ring of the Nibelung. Um, Shore is a Canadian, I think a Toronto-based composer who has been composing film scores for David Cronenberg's films, I think from the beginning. Yep, from the beginning. I think they go way back. And Shore now has become, I think, a fairly significant figure in Hollywood. I think he's a really talented composer. One of the things that's cool about him is that all of his scores sort of have a different sound. Before we recorded, you sent me, you told me to listen to the soundtrack he did for David Cronenberg's Crash, which is based on a J.G. Ballard novel. And it has a completely different sound from anything else of his. I've heard totally different sound from, for example, Naked Lunch. It's it's, it's just for the listeners, it's a chamber ensemble made up of electric guitars. It's very yeah. cool. Very cool. It's a very cool sound. Yeah. In Naked Lunch, he has a very particular sound that is partly sounds sort of like Bernard Herrmann. Bernard Herrmann is one of the great film music composers and he, in fact, was the guy who composed music for Hitchcock's Psycho, which we've already mentioned. Have you ever li- watched Taxi Driver? I'm sure you have. Many, many times. Yeah, he wrote the music for that, too. And the music for Taxi Driver has this kind of feeling of, like, dark romanticism. It's a kind of a, a somewhat thickly orchestrated score, and it has the sort of doomy, melancholy romanticism that calls back to old film noir. Right, absolutely. Uh, yeah. People misremember film noir. Imagine that all of those films are full of jazz, but actually relatively few of them have any jazz in them at all. Most of them are very kind of old school, golden age, romantic film scores and, you know, scored for full orchestra. So Shore is going for that sound. Mm-hmm. But then against this sort of melancholy orchestral backdrop, we have Ornette Coleman, one of the most significant figures of jazz history. If you've ever heard of free jazz, which is to say jazz that attempts to attain the condition of pure improvisation. So improvisation that will register a kind of pure movement of the improviser's imagination. Uh, it, this is really a music of durée, right? This is right. all about movement and not about the various things like chord changes and key signatures and time signatures, and or even 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 predetermined scores or structures. There's a total, yeah, yeah predetermined structures like yeah. uh, you know rhythm changes or twelve bar blues structure or anything like that. The idea is to remove those things and what you are left with once you remove this sort of and this is not necessarily Ornette Coleman's own idea but this is an idea that's I think widely circulated about free music or free improvisation is that when you boil away 
all these impedimenta to the true fluid motion of the human imagination, what you're left with is that pure motion itself. Right. And Ornette Coleman is an interesting guy. He's the first jazz musician to do that kind of improvisation as a matter of course. There's a guy named Lenny Tristano who experimented with free improvisation about a decade before Ornette Coleman did. But Coleman emerged onto the jazz scene quite suddenly in 1959. And he was both sort of the new hotness, kind of the new, I don't know, like all the hit people had to know about Ornette Coleman and had to have an opinion about him. Uh, But he was also like a very controversial figure within jazz. There's a funny story of Max Roach, who eventually came to really adopt a lot of Coleman-esque ideas about improvisation. But at first, you know, Roach was one of the original bebop guys. And bebop is wild and original kind of music as it was in its time, uh, became... I think very bound up with certain conventions, uh, sort of music theoretical, formal harmonic innovations that it brought into the world and then perfected. It became a very almost scientific music. And for a lot of beboppers, free jazz was sort of threatening. And so there's a story of Max Roach punching Ornette Coleman at I think the five spot or whatever the club was that Coleman's quartet was playing. And then Roach was so pissed that he followed Coleman back to his hotel and at three in the morning was yelling up at his window, like, come out of there, asshole. I'll kick (laughs) your ass again. It's like, this gives you an idea of just how much emotional heat there was around Coleman. There were musicians who were like, he's a phony. He doesn't actually know how to play his instrument. He's got nothing. And then other people were like, no, no, no. He's got the secret of jazz itself, the secret that we've lost by becoming more formal, more abstract, more technical, that his music somehow, in a manner that nobody was ever really able to nail down analytically, although the composer Gunther Schuller tried, um, his music in some way managed to bring back echoes of rural blues there are like bluesy figures in it there are sometimes moments where it actually sounds very old-fashioned but those elements are mixed up in a kind of a soup of Mm -hmm. improvisatory moves that kind of defy analysis ornette coleman has become something of a classic now i think in a jazz history class will make the same reverential noises about Coleman as we will about an earlier innovator like Charlie Parker. And yet to me, Ornette Coleman's music, the style of his improvisation has a kind of a mystery to it that's never been solved. Right. Anyway, I'm sorry, I've gone off a little bit trying to explain like who Ornette Coleman was and why his music matters and why it matters that Howard Shore would have gotten him to play on the Naked Lunch soundtrack. So you have this doomy orchestral sonority you hear the main title theme cue up. You're sitting in a darkened theater and you start seeing these abstract moving colored shapes and you hear this music and you hear it's uh, actually what it is, is a, uh, a minor 913 chord for those of you who are keeping track at home. So you have this kind of like complex 
romantic sounding chord. It's kind of a jazz chord, actually. Yeah. Like, very Herman-esque. Like that really sounds like something from a, a Bernard Herman film score. And, you know, you hear the orchestral music. You hear these little motifs poking out of the orchestra. And then you hear Ornette Coleman. You hear this sort of weird, kind of twisty, turny, semitonal, skittering, improvised melody. And that's Ornette Coleman. And he's sort of almost like a, a like a water bug skating. Oh, that's a great. This, yeah. yeah, skating on the surface tension of the water. You know, Ornette Coleman's weird, just like inherently weird sound. It's not just the notes he's picking. It's also the fact that he, you know, famously played microtonal intonation. So not, you know, the way a piano is tuned. <laughs> All of the semitones, all of the half tones, those small, all the smallest intervals are all tuned to the same width. It's the same, the same size of interval. They're all tuned exactly the same. Whereas Ornette Coleman likes to play in the cracks between the piano keys, microtonal intervals that are smaller than a semitone. And so like, I couldn't even give you a proper piano transcription of the notes he's playing if I tried. There's this quality, not only that the pitches aren't, don't quite go with the ones in Shore's orchestral score, but the intonation of Ornette Coleman's playing puts it in a kind of a different musical universe. And then there's his sound, just his timbre, which is just very plaintive. Um, it has this quality of being in the musical texture without quite being of it. Yeah, but then no, at the definitely. same, but then at the same time, it would be all too easy to say, "Oh yeah, but you know, it's just random, right? It, you know, we laid down the orchestral track and then." Ornette Coleman lays down his improvisation and we stitch them together and never the twain shall meet, but it's all fucked up and weird because they're different. But that's not it either because there are these moments of lockup where Coleman will actually play what sounds like pretty, like a melody from within the harmonic universe of the orchestral cue. He'll suddenly kind of lock up with it and then he'll just fly away again off on his own so it's like you're never you never feel like they're entirely in the same universe but you have these moments of strange synchronization where they cross they touch one another mm -hmm. now that i'm thinking about it almost in the way that those abstract colored blocks it briefly intersect and then pull apart from one another again i'm and, sure that's not, not intentional but nevertheless it, it's an image that suggests itself yeah now you're referring to the uh the design of the opening sequence where it's yeah, like yeah, a yeah, Saul yeah. Bass style, 50s film noir style, like Fitchcock. Exactly. Yeah. Thing where there's yeah. just these blocks of colors just like, yeah, float across the screen. and, and... Like Anatomy of a Murder, for example, right. has a opening credit sequence, a Saul Bass sequence that's very much like that. Yeah, or Vertigo. And that, yeah, the, yeah the, Vertigo. The, I like what you said. I like the metaphor of the water bug skittering across the surface of the water. That's what I love about that piece is that there's something insectoid about mm. about Coleman's role in that piece, what he's doing, and that connects with the probably the central image of the film, which is the image of the the, the metaphor, symbol of the insect, 
And that's also an operative symbol in Burroughs because Burroughs is very much like that famous statement he makes, mission statement in Naked Lunch, where he says, there's only one thing a writer can write about, what is in front of his senses at the moment of writing. Insofar as I succeed in direct recording of certain areas of psychic process, I may have limited function. So Burroughs is always about trying to get to the actual libidinal energy of a psychic process. He often uses the symbol of the insect to represent those forces that govern society and the individual below the threshold of consciousness. And that's very much what Coleman's doing with this kind of like almost like... um a musical version of the surrealist's automatic writing. It's a little bit what Coleman is doing. There's something very occult about what Coleman is doing. He's not He's not there. He's letting something come out through him. I've always had the, this sensation as I've listened to his music, and that connects Coleman, or, or it, it really kind of like places him in the same tradition as the surrealists and also the beats, you know, with absolutely uh, like um, Ginsburg's idea of first thought, best thought, uh, the idea that you need to just capture the psychic process, capture what's going on in the mind right now in the mind and its interface with the world. And you'll get something real that you can't get when you organize or when you overcompose an artistic idea into a, stru- a pre-existing structure. There's a lot of truth to that. It's not the final word on art, I think. I think we both agree on that. But um, when you adopt that hyperstition, when you adopt that mode and you create art in that mode, you, you sometimes come up with some truly prophetic work. And I think that what Coleman is doing, I think it was a really wise choice. I don't know if it was Cronenberg or Shore who decided to bring in Ornette Coleman, but as like an ingenious choice. Genius move. It is genius, it's a genius move, move. Because he translates into sound the fundamental kind of elemental energy of the film. Yeah. And uh and it makes the film weirder. Um because, Oh yeah. Because the film was th- I find Naked Lunch as a film we've already talked about it, but it it's a little too conventional, but Cronenberg manages to weird it with that type of move. Um Yep. Uh and and it pushes the film back into something like cl- something closer to Burroughs's universe. Also, there's the fact that Ornette Coleman comes from that world, that decade. Yeah, he, that's he true. started in the 50s, so he comes from that world. So he's like almost like a ghost from that actual time. I'll, I'll tell you another way that this music, to me, locks up with the film or complements it is there's a thing about the drugs in Naked Lunch, right? That you never see anybody using a drug that actually exists in this world. Mm-hmm. You know, there's bug powder, which is the stuff that Joan, Bill Lee's wife, is hooked on. Yeah. And then there's the black meat. Yeah. You know, the black meat of the what are the giant Brazilian aquatic centipede, which doesn't exist. Yeah, and then mugwump jism. These are all drugs that don't exist. In fact, at one point when... Bill Lee is writing letters to his two friends who are clearly stand-ins for Kerouac and Ginsburg. One of the things you see he's written in his typewriter is, I think I'm addicted to a drug that doesn't really exist. And that's sort of like a key to the weird, weird feeling of that film is that you're never quite sure what level of reality you're on. Right. It would be easy to say that Bill Lee is in interzone, but interzone is in reality, quote unquote, actually just 
New York City, but he's just living on the bum and hallucinating that he's in some place called Interzone. The only problem is that there's levels of reality within, like hallucinations within hallucinations, if you decide that Interzone is just one big hallucination. You know, there are moments like when he says to one of his friends, I've got my ticket to Interzone, and he pulls out a file of bug powder. And his friend's like, put that away. You know, someone might see. You know, that's a moment where we're like, oh, well, clearly Billy is hallucinating and he thinks that this file of drugs that he's got in his pocket is actually a bus ticket that'll take him to Interzone. But the thing is that the file of drugs that he shows his friend, I think it's Martin, is bug powder, which doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, or like in Interzone, there's a moment where it's like there's a typewriter that turns into this weird sexual insect. You know mm-hmm. the bit I'm talking about? Cronenberg calls it the sex blob. The sex blob, yeah. She yeah. beats the sex blob until it disappears over the edge of the balcony. And then you see a cut down to the street level, and what comes crashing down is a typewriter. Right. You know, it's just sort of like, okay, so that would seem to indicate that the sex blob was a hallucination, but its hallucinatory properties are revealed within Interzone. Yeah, so it's hallucinations within hallucinations, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, you never know where you are, and that is one of the most thoroughly disquieting things, is it's not sort of like, oh, now we're going to have a dream sequence, like in Oklahoma or something, where you can have all kinds of crazy shit happen, but you can be reassured that it's a dream, and there are certain formal or technical things a filmmaker can do to give you a firm feeling of where the dream begins and ends. So the weirdness can be kind of safely... Uh, contained uh, yeah. qu- quarantined yeah. yeah put in a little virtual vitrine mm-hmm. but cronenberg is at every moment working to undo that so everything is neither this nor that everything is in between and that quality of in betweenness to me is perfectly captured in this music right which is you know that kind of quality of Frank Zappa had a term for it, xenochrony, strange synchronization. Right, right. Xenochrony between these two very heterogeneous auditory objects, the orchestral track and Ornette Coleman. Yeah, another way the score does that, Shore's score does that, is by mixing elements of kind of a film noir, jazzy 50s kind of uh, idiom, and then mixing that with Moroccan or Middle Eastern themes the master musicians of jujuko right were the, the, uh, involved in the performances the uh the opening sequence sounds quite noirish as you say but i think i think i might be mistaken but i think the instrumentation includes some middle eastern instruments like some oh, yeah. of the kind of tambourine sounds you hear and uh, listening to it yesterday i thought oh wow there even then there's a kind of um kind of exotic arabian nights feel even to that opening piece I think that it was obviously a way to transform 1950s New York into North African interzone. Like to, to make that transformation work, they had to blend these two idioms together, this kind of like North African Moroccan music and mix it in with this jazzy 50s thing. And so once again, you're in between worlds. You're always in between. And we were talking about Naked Lunch now, which we, I guess it's inevitable in this case, but they were supposed to shoot the interzone sequences in Morocco but because of some political strife that was happening at the time, they had to shoot it in Toronto. And I think that helped the film. They had to shoot it on sets. And you can see it's, it makes the Moroccan parts of the film 
even more surreal because they look like stages. They look like yeah, it, the film that's looks totally true. The film often looks like it's a stage play that's being shot. Um, yeah. And again, that artifice connects with Ornette Coleman, Automatic. Right? There's um to me, Naked Lunch is the perfect decadent movie of our times. It captures the essence of what Baudelaire and Oscar Wilde and these guys were going for, Huisman, this decadent energy of a, a world that's coming to pieces and the ethical license to luxuriate in that. Um, mm. I, I, and I find that Coleman and the jazz mixed with the kind of the Orientalist, quote unquote, the kind of Oriental music or Near Eastern music mixed in with the, the drugs that don't exist and the dreams within a dream. And all of these dealing with really real human themes gives the, the film a, a decadent charge that I really, mm. really like. Yeah, I would like to change the subject within this conversation talking about Ornette Coleman to bring up a story that I love. It's such a weird story. And it's about Ornette Coleman. Sure. Something that's kind of interesting about Coleman is he was largely self-taught, which is to say he taught himself music theory from studying theory textbooks. But he apparently had some problems with dyslexia. And there were some fundamental mistakes that he made, conceptual errors he made in trying to understand these theoretical terms when he was trying to learn theory. And those errors, and I, I'll, I'll say mistakes or errors in scare quotes because they ended up being tremendously productive. They led to Coleman's mature vision of music, his own idea of music theory that he called harmelotics, which is a portmanteau word uh, made up of harmony and melody, harmelotics. And it has to do with the idea that each individual moment of music is a kind of a singularity where all the different aspects of music come together. So, you know, if you think about like what goes into music, what are the ingredients of music? Well, you have volume, you have pitch, you know, which note we're playing. We have the rhythm, of course, but you also have, for example, the placement of a pitch within a measure. You know, if, if we get back to thinking about a three, four time waltz time, you know, whether you play a pitch at the, on, on one or whether you play it on two or whether you play it on three makes a big difference. Right. Because the emphasis is going to be different. Right. It's so not the same note. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so Coleman, out of his self-teaching, arrived at an extremely uh, very individual, completely unique to him idea of how music works that he tried repeatedly to explain as a theory of harmelotics, which basically nobody really understands what he meant. But it seems that he had this idea of all of these different dimensions of music, the dynamics, the pitch, the the timbre, the the you know like the tone quality, you know, whether it's played in a saxophone or a trumpet or whatever, the rhythm, all of those different parameters of music coming together at each individual moment to create what he called a unison. Now you have to understand that what a unison really is in music theory is where you've got two pitches played at the same time and it's the same pitch. So right. I can play the C on my piano. Bum, 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 bum. That's a unison, right? Now Coleman would talk about unisons, but he didn't mean that. He meant a special quality 
that would happen when all those dimensions of music would come together in a singular event, which is a really interesting way to think about music. Now, it's what it's what Deleuze calls a hexaity from uh, ah, from Don Scotus. Yes. It's when every element comes together to form a singular thing, not a combination of different things that you could remove, but a singular event. Like one of the, th- the things he writes is the black dog runs at five o'clock. A five o'clock and the black dog are part of the one event. That's what I think Coleman was getting at with Unison and nice. Hicksite. Yes. It's a thing that is a thing in itself. You can't separate any of the elements without losing the whole thing. Um, and yep. none of the elements make sense without being part of the event. So, yeah, yeah. something like that. I think that's a great way of thinking about it, hexaity. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, it's conjecture because Coleman, you know, he, the whole thing about his idea of harmonics and unisons, it's a whole musical universe that existed in his head. And the story I have to tell has to do with the incommensurability of that universe in his head and the universe from which all his wonderful music emerged. The incommensurability of that universe with the consensus universe of like music theory or how music theory works. So the story is that Gunther Schuller, who is an important composer, one of the few musicians who is equally at home in Western art or classical composition, like modern composition and jazz, he was heavily involved in various kinds of progressive or modernistic jazz in the 50s and 60s and was an early supporter of Ornette Coleman's. Schuller was fascinated by Coleman and tried to analyze Coleman, tried to figure him out, but uh, it's a questionable whether he ever really quite could get inside the logic of Coleman's music. He, it was a questionable whether he could ever really get inside that musical universe of harmonics in Coleman's head. And so the story is that for a while, Schuller was giving Coleman lessons. Now, Coleman realized that he had learned music theory, quote unquote, wrong, right? And so Schuller was trying to teach him music theory correctly, how it works. And so I'm going to read you from an interview with Gunther Schuller that Ethan Iverson did. And Ethan Iverson is a jazz musician associated with the trio, The Bad Plus. So Schuller is telling the story about how he set about trying to correct Coleman's notions. Every Wednesday afternoon for almost a year, Coleman would come over to his house on 90th Street in New York City for a lesson. And Schuller writes, I'm a pretty good teacher and I'm also fairly persuasive and I'm good in the sense that if there's a real problem, I find ways of getting around that problem, you know. Well, in his case, I was not successful. And I tried all kinds of things, but this mental block in his mind where the notes were always upside down from where they really were just was such a severe block, I could not break through that. And I got more and more frustrated and I wanted so much to help him with that. And one day he came and he was religious about this, you know, that in itself is something amazing, coming every Wednesday for nine months or something like that. And that time it all blew up. I don't remember what it is I said, but I evidently said something that was like a tremendous breakthrough in his brain about this whole question. I wish I knew what I said. But he suddenly, if a black man can turn white, he turned white and he started to throw up and he went to the bathroom and luckily it was only about 20 feet away and he went in there and he just emptied himself out. He had some kind of paroxysm experience, and he came out of there totally destroyed. He couldn't talk, and Margie, my wife, was hysterical. She thought that, what's happening? We have to take him to the hospital or something. And he just stayed in the living room and sat there for 20 minutes, not saying a word, 
and eventually left. And then I didn't see him ever again about that. It was the most horrifying experience and also one of the most frustrating. I find that story absolutely amazing. The idea that you are a creator and you have an entire universe within which your art can take shape and you see the presentiment of an alternate universe, a universe next to your own. And the response is to vomit and and flee. Well, to, to, to basically, he was vomiting everything that he had learned. <laughs> he was getting rid. Yeah. He was purging himself of this pollutant that was proper music theory so that he could continue doing whatever it was he was doing. I love that story. I love that story. It reminds me, it's a, there's a reverse thing happening in Beckett, right? Because Beckett didn't really hit it till he was 45 or something. And uh, for many, many years, he was toiling in the shadow of James Joyce and he was writing in English, but he never broke through and found his voice until he adopted French as his language for expressing himself. And then he wrote Waiting for Godot and the trilogy and everything kind of flowed from there. It was by operating in a foreign language that he was able to find the impoverishment he needed for his vision to come through. He was too good oh. in English. He had to find a language he was bad at in order to write properly. So another example is Bob Dylan. This is a kind of a banal example. But Bob Dylan quit smoking and then couldn't sing, so had to start smoking again. <laughs> and actually, Bob Dylan's very similar to Coleman in that sense because Dylan never really learned music. Everything he did, he did this in this idiosyncratic way, the way he played the guitar, the way he sang, the way he was just doing his own thing. And every attempt he made at becoming a proper musician ultimately threatened the universe that he constructed or that he had discovered. So he always had to go back to you know the stance of the fool in the mythic sense, the fool who has no education but profound knowledge or Gnostic, a kind of gnosis of something. And uh, education actually can only threaten it because there's a danger to it. So, yeah, that's that's a great, great story. You know, there's something modernist about this in the sense that, like, one of the things about modernism, not just in music, but I think in all art forms, is that the job description of the artist shifts a little bit. Your job is not only to create works of art, but to create systems within which works of art can be created. And so a creator like Arnold Schoenberg, for example, isn't just going to compose music in a newly atonal fashion, which is to say without a sense of a home pitch or a tonic, as we say. It's not just that, but he'll also create an entire system within which atonal composition can be managed systematically. So this is 12-tone composition. And you see throughout the 20th century ever proliferating systems where every composer has his or her own system and the building of the system is as much or even more a creative act than actually writing the music that's governed by that system. But what's interesting about Ornette Coleman and Bob Dylan is that they're kind of doing the same thing in a way. They are artists whose art takes place within a self-created system. And yet the self-created system is not created 
out of this kind of, it's sort of a doing a modernist thing, but not in the way that the classical high modernists did. Setting about rationally to create a system. What you have with someone like Bob Dylan is just sort of, I don't know. It's certainly not like he set about some kind of rigorous regimen to get his voice exactly that way or to play harmonica with exactly that degree of um, kind of, I don't know, that almost like a bird with a broken wing. I mean, it has that kind of like slightly yeah, broken quality, but it's perfect, right? Right. It's not a choice. Which isn't to say that there isn't a great degree of artistic calculation in these artists' work, but the sense of like, I built a universe for my music to take place in, but I built it largely through intuition and the hazards of individual biography. That's interesting to me. Remember last time we were talking about, when we did the Naked Lunch episode, we were talking about how in modern the modernity, your organic nature, you as an organism become a limitation to you. So, for example, you were mentioning a David Foster Wallace character who's afraid to defecate who hates yeah. defecating because it reminds him of his organic nature. And he yeah. hates that to be reduced to some kind of organism or essentially some kind of mechanism instead of being... Yeah. A, an, an ism of his organs, as David ism, Foster Walls puts it. An ism of his organs, right. But I think that Coleman and Dylan are perfect examples of how to use a delusionism to really become a body without organs. It doesn't mean to like sew up your anus and mouth and become an egg, as he describes in Anti-Oedipus, but rather to take up your organic limitations and see them as opportunities for creating something completely singular. Um, so you have Dylan's incapacity to sing, for example, properly, quote unquote, or you have Coleman's dyslexia, which is a brain problem. And yet these things, <laughs> far from being actual limitations become the doorways through which or the instruments for the creation of something absolutely new. And they make themselves a body without organs without having to fight against the ism of their organ, but by embracing it and by translating it, by accepting it. And it's, a, it's not easy to do that because the pressure, you can see in that story you told, Coleman felt he wasn't good enough. He wanted to learn music properly. And yet it was only at that last meeting that he realized that to do so would mean the destruction of everything he built, everything he created. Yeah. So he had to go back to that. And I really think that's a very important aspect of modernity because that's also part of modernity. The ability to, in a sense, folk art has always been modernism in a way. Hmm. Um you know, hmm. the, the guys in the village in 1850 who played tunes for their minor friends in Wales were modernists. They didn't have theory. They didn't have what they were doing was creating a language together. They didn't have any historical sense of where the music came from and where what it was about or what was happening next. There was a sense of trying to create the perfect moment now. And it seems like one of the positive aspects of modernism in art is that it, and this is really clear when you look at um, Bartok or other, that the, the, the folk element is very important. Or P Picasso, you know, you go back to what the unrecorded, unacknowledged artists are doing. The artists who are operating outside of the academically sanctioned halls of art and you find out what's going on there and you find that what's going on there is actual real creation. And then you try to bring that into the mainstream. And that's one very important aspect of modernism, I think. And a good thing, a really good thing. What, what do you think of that? I like that idea a lot. 
Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that the relationship between Gunther Schuller and Ornette Coleman really defines kind of an interface between the larger modernism, to use a purposefully self-contradictory expression, the perennial modernism that you're talking about. Yeah which we might think of as embodied in Ornette Coleman, and the according to Hoyle kind of school book modernism of Gunther Schuller. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, but it's not for nothing that Schuller was absolutely fascinated by Coleman. As I say, for somebody who was himself like a thoroughly learned musician, you know, Schuller was fascinated by Coleman and felt as others did at the time that Coleman was the most authentically modern musician going. Right. You know, and that can be translated into the habitual critical language of modernism, where we're always about the next thing, the next logical motion of history, the next link in a chain that stretches out to a kind of temporal horizon of the future. And it's certainly in those terms that Schuller and other modernists hailed Ornette Coleman. But Coleman's modernism wasn't that modernism. You know, Coleman, I don't think, ever gave a shit about trying to be, like, the next big thing in jazz. No. Although, certainly, the titles of his early Atlantic albums, like The Shape of Jazz to Come, all gestured frantically at that idea. But Coleman himself never gave me the impression of being all about that. His ideas are ideas that bubble up from that kind of inner universe of harm melodics, and that all of the modernist critical baffle gab about like necessary innovations and the march of progress and all the rest of that uh, th those were ideas that were kind of appliqued onto him but nevertheless the sort of more schoolmasterish modernists did perceive something about Coleman it's not just funny notes weird tunings the obvious low-hanging fruit strangeness of Coleman's playing but there's something else Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.